Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast for today, August 24th, 2021. I am Associate Editor of Commentary Magazine, Noah Rothman. John Podhoritz is still out today, as is our senior writer, Christine Rosen. But with us is uh, Executive Editor, Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hey, Noah. And joining us graciously is the Editor Emeritus of Daily Wire and the author of the new book, The Authoritarian Moment. How the left's weaponized how the left weaponized America's institutions against dissent. Ben Shapiro. Ben, welcome to the program again. Thank you for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. I mean, honestly, I'm I'm, I'm not sure that I can take all of us listening to each other at one speed. You, you normally talk so much faster in my ears. This is bizarre. I'm doing my best to enunciate and articulate and to be a, you know a professional broadcaster here, but it is harder than it looks, as you well know. Um, Today, ladies and gentlemen, I think it's fair to say, and I have said as much on Commentary Magazine's uh, website, where my newest post is just published, uh, that we are embarking upon the largest hostage crisis in the history of the United States of America. Uh, last night, we had a an admission, um, an acknowledgement, rather, I guess, of reality that was overdue, but welcome from the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, Adam Schiff, who emerged Schiff, who emerged from a classified briefing and told reporters that uh, the notion that we will end America's mission in Afghanistan by the self-set deadline of August 31st is nothing short of fanciful. Quote, given the number of Americans who still need to be evacuated, the number of SIVs, the number of others who are members of the Afghan press, civil society leaders, women leaders, it is hard for me to imagine all of this can be accomplished between now and the end of the month. Um, today, the president will be confronted by the prime minister of Great Britain, Boris Johnson, who will urge the president in no uncertain terms to extend the deadline of this evacuation beyond the 31st. Um, the United States is doing its best to now exfiltrate Americans outside this airport. They've uh, okayed special forces operations to exfiltrate Americans. They are slowing down and even denying the Afghans who are eligible to be evacuated from getting on these planes in order to prioritize Americans. It is a Herculean effort, but it is impossible to do what needs to be done in such a short period. According yet to uh, estimates from the Pentagon yesterday, roughly 3,300 of the estimated 10 to 15,000 Americans who are stranded in Afghanistan have been evacuated. So we've done the easy part. Now comes the hard part. And there's really no clear way to execute this mission. And the Taliban says it will not abide by an extension of this deadline by the 31st. So the circumstances seem pretty clear to me. Either we engage in, again, combat operations 
with Taliban forces in order to expand out our footprint, establish safe zones all over the country and get Americans out, or we bribe them into submission. This is the definition of a hostage crisis. Am I wrong? Well, I think you're uh, right. And um, there are also reports that uh, Joe Biden seems to be reluctant to extend uh, the deadline. Um, now, this might conflict with, you know, uh, reports of um, uh, the head of the CIA going over to talk with the Taliban. One presumes they're talking, he's talking to them about extending the deadline. Uh, We know uh, our our European allies want us to extend the deadline. So he may be um, uh, fearful uh, of the Taliban as he has been throughout um, uh, Biden, that is. Uh, He may be too fearful to say um, that uh, uh, that he's actually willing uh, and and wants to extend the deadline uh, for fear of uh, reprisal, uh, which is once again yes the definition of a hostage crisis. And uh, you know throughout this you have uh, Jen Psaki bristling at the mention during a press conference um, of the of the word uh, stranded. Uh, that that, uh, uh, that when asked uh, if, about Americans who are stranded in Afghanistan, she she claims it's irresponsible to use the word stranded. No American is stranded. Um, we know they are stranded. Once again, definitionally, um, they are reaching out to American media um, with frantic calls, uh, talking about how they are stranded and scared for their lives. Ben, um, we, we got a very heartrending uh, piece of audio out of Representative Carol Miller's office. Um, she published it on her Twitter account a couple of days ago. It is excruciating to listen to, but it is the sound of someone who is resigning themselves to an atrocious fate uh, at the hands of a, a, a militia that is bent on vengeance. We know through history... Um, that America has suffered, you know, hostage crises like these, and that they have a profound political impact. One, Ben, I want you to, A, tell me how you think this ends, and B, what's the political calculation for this White House if we are presiding over an extended, not just humiliation, but abject um, demonstration of American impotence for what could be months on end? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the the way that this probably ends is that the Biden administration just sends enormous pallets of cash to the Taliban, and we become the chief sponsors of the Haqqani Network, which is exciting. I mean, we, we've really shifted our viewpoint over the last 20 years from these are bad people and we should probably kill them to probably these are good people who can help us get our people out of the country and we should pay them. That's a, that's a pretty dramatic shift, especially considering that three of the 12-man Taliban council – I've noticed all men, by the way, which is going to really upset the uh, the equal – Employment Opportunity Commission. It's it's very upsetting to to people domestically to know there are no transgender women on the Taliban council, but it's a 12-man council, and three of the top members are Mullah Omar's son, the co-founder of the Taliban, and the head of the Haqqani Network, which is an actual like Al-Qaeda-linked terror group designated as such by virtually every civilized government. And those are the people that we are relying on to protect the people entering the airport from ISIS, which has now entered Kabul. So the, the president of the United States did not trust the Afghan national military and the American military to get all the Americans and our allies out. But he is trusting these people to get all of them out. I mean, I don't see any way that this ends other than the United States ends up 
just paying through the nose to get these folks out. Yeah, you raise the prospect of the Taliban basically holding everybody in abeyance past the August 31st deadline. I think the only problem for the Taliban in doing that is that there are other terrorist groups at work in the country who want to see the Americans out ASAP. Uh, and so I think that the most likely scenario here is probably that, yes, there's a deal that is reached and that the deadline is extended for a week and then Joe Biden pays them a lot of money and they let the United States get everybody out, but not any of the Afghans. They've already said the Afghans who are there are, are remaining there. And Joe Biden raises his hands in victory. The media proclaim him wonderful. You're already starting to see the media change on this, by the way. I noted on Monday that I think that the the major question was going to be for the media because it was weird to watch the media over the last week turn on the person for whom they have performed slobbering sycophancy for the last several years. Uh, they, they turned on him with a vengeance in the last week. And I said, I'll be shocked if they don't return away from that this week. And you're starting to see elements of that. You're starting to see members of the media starting to say things like, well, this is a pretty well-organized a pretty well organized exit. You know, they, they, maybe we should rethink how we're how we're characterizing this. And Ron Klain sitting there retweeting everything the way that Donald Trump would sitting on the toilet. It's really. It, <laughs> I'm glad the adults are back in charge. That's and that's an interesting observation and one I share that you could tell it was very discomforting to be in the position of having to be so vocally and, and emotionally critical of this administration's approach to this sort of thing. And they started to buy into the White House's talking point, right, that they've executed this Herculean mission to get. 37,000, the vast majority of whom are Afghans and our allies uh, who worked with us over the last 20 years. But uh, this, you know, 37,000 people is no small feat. And yet the administration is already at work dismantling its own talking point by now denying access to these SIV eligible, eligible for evacuation, uh, you know, Afghans from, you know, the airport, just halting it, just not allowing them to, to leave in order to prioritize Americans. This talking point is the last, you know, refuge of this administration. And they are presently dismantling it. And also something, again, you mentioned something we talked about yesterday is that, you know, the Biden administration has put a lot of stock in intra-terrorist politics. Uh, you know, the notion here that there's, you know, some theological distinctions between uh, the, you know, the, the ISIS iteration that's operational in Afghanistan and the Taliban, the Haqqani network, they all have their grievances and they're, you know, sometimes they clash and sometimes even violently. But the notion here that they are not anything other than united against a foreign foe, e.g. the United States and our NATO allies, is equally fanciful. Uh, it's the sort of thing that doesn't survive, you know, much less, you know, a week, much less maybe a 24-hour news cycle. I mean, they're putting their stock in winning a new, winning news cycles here when they should be winning a mission. Well, that, that was one of the things that was so weird is over the last 24 hours, you mentioned 3,300 Americans had been removed. First of all, I, I think the reason that that's one of the reasons, if that number is the, the most recent number, the Pentagon yesterday was being asked repeatedly about how many Americans were among the 42,000 people who had been removed. And they refused to say, they just kept saying several thousand. And when they were asked why they refused to say, they kept saying, well, we don't want to give you inaccurate numbers. And so, well, you could give us the accurate number as of X hour or X day. And they weren't saying it, I think, because they were afraid that the blowback from the American public was going to be, okay, so you've removed 40,000 people who are Afghan and you've, received, you've removed, you know, 2,500 who are American. Where are the other 12,000? And what, 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 what's going on here? And so they, they really have been spinning on an almost moment by moment basis. As a, and that is all to avoid the basic reality, which is that they are now operating under a set of guidelines that are pretty much impossible. And this is going to be ugly no matter how you slice it. And they just refuse to acknowledge this because Joe Biden was happy talking this thing like a month ago. And Abe, isn't that setting us up for a fall, though? I, I, wouldn't they have more credibility 
and 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 even more leniency from from the American public. The American public might actually understand the position that Biden put himself in as inexcusable as it is, but perhaps understandable if they were clear-eyed and sober and honest about the challenges before us. But they're not. They're just they're like like Ben said, they're spinning. I actually don't think so. I mean, I mean, they are spinning, but I I, I don't think the American public um, would be receptive to their saying the, the truth, which is. Um, aside from the, the, the low numbers of Americans, um, that they have no idea how many Americans are yet to be removed, right? They don't even have a handle on the numbers. Um, no one wants, no one's going to be forgiving about that, actually. Um, and so I think they're doing all they can do, which is to talk up this success narrative, which, as you guys mentioned, um, people are starting to buy into. And I just want to, on that question, because what, what people are dwelling on uh, in order to claim that this is somehow... Uh, surprisingly successful are the large numbers or the large numbers of uh, going out every day in the tens of thousands. Um, yeah, sure. Those numbers are, are, are impressive in a way operationally. The point is, this is already a massive failure. The failure was in having no idea that the country would collapse on them immediately after they did this, making zero planning ahead to get out Americans and our allies. Um, not coordinating at all with our, our operational allies uh, in, in, in other countries, giving them uh, no information about this. Um, having multiple deaths at the airport, gruesome deaths, including of, of, of infants and people dropping off planes. This, the disaster has taken place. Claiming any sort of success now is like, you know, if you, if you, the, you, you built a house, burnt it down because you had bad wiring, uh, but then, you know, managed to to successfully, like, you know, use your fire extinguisher and, and everyone would say, so, you know, we might want to rethink this. It's not such a disaster after all. You know? um, yeah, I mean, I, I struggle to see what the, the administration's endgame is, if they've even contemplated. But this that audio and I, everybody in our audience, if you have the opportunity you should say what specifically it, it, it is, because you didn't say uh, it was representative um, Carol Miller's office. And she tweeted out the audio that she had received yeah. um, of an American trap behind enemy lines, right. resigning, resigning herself yeah. to a pretty gruesome fate. Um, it's on her Twitter account, and you could find it online. But it's the sort of thing that foreshadows um, a real catastrophe for the country. And if the administration isn't extremely fortunate, I mean, the, the, the Pentagon has already acknowledged that Americans are having a, quote, tough time. Uh, insofar as they can make it to the to the airport when they've attempted to do so. They've been beaten, they've been bludgeoned, they've been harassed, um, they've been spat upon, half a dozen other insults to their dignity. And the administration is only getting away with this because there's no images. If there was a video of one of these assaults, I, I can't imagine, Ben, that it would be that the, the American press wouldn't be obliged professionally to plaster it all over the place and, and without any sort of contextualization or excuse making. And the sort of thing that can really galvanize the American public. I mean, that's what we saw in 2014 with the rise of ISIS. This was a, a, a foreign terrorist organization that didn't present any immediate threats to the American, to American national security. And we were out of Afghanistan and people were generally happy to, or I'm sorry, Iraq, and people were happy to be out of Iraq. And that turned on a dime. Yeah. Um, when we saw Americans uh, beheaded by this terrorist group, uh, something similar is perhaps in the offing. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that's the reason why the Taliban actually would prefer not to have those images happen. I think that uh, they, they would prefer, if I'm the Taliban, I prefer to take the bribe and, and move on. Uh, and then six months later, reveal all the photos of the pallets of cash and build statues of the pallets of cash the same way that the Iranians did when they took prisoner uh, American uh, American naval officers uh, so or American naval staffers. So the, the sort of... Um, you're right that such images would be really bad. I, one thing that I'm concerned about is that the overarching theme of this devastating betrayal of Afghanistan, uh, I think that what the Biden administration is basically hoping for is that over the course of the next two weeks, they do get everybody or virtually everybody out. And then everybody says, well, you know, it was like Dunkirk. We actually did get those people out and we're happy to be out of Afghanistan. Those people are out. So what exactly are you complaining about? And this misses the broader point, which is that we just handed over for no apparent reason a country of 38 million people, including presumably half of those are, are women and many of those are underage women, uh, to the devastating reprisals of the Taliban. We just handed over the entire country to the predations of not only the Taliban, but all of the associated terror groups. We got rid of all of our bases in Afghanistan. We're going to lose all of our bases in Pakistan. The so-called over-the-horizon capacity that Biden is talking about does not exist. I mean, if you're talking about how we're going to be launching drone strikes from Qatar 600 miles away. Uh, and and with no intelligence on the ground that this is going to work like that is the action how we've completely undermined our geostrategic position the actual devastating long-term effect of this uh, is is broader than simply the people who are on the ground today and I, I think that what the Biden administration is hoping for is that the crisis is so acutely focused on the people who are on the ground that barring the sort of circumstance you're talking about Noah three weeks from now if all the Americans are out then most people will go okay I guess that was over and I think that that's probably what they, that that's why they're going moment to moment. I agree with with Abe that if they were to recognize the the actual reality of the situation on the ground, it would be worse for them. So they're going to try and happy talk their way through this until the point where enough Americans are out that they can claim a victory in getting Americans out and say, "Aren't you happy that we're not there anymore?" And I think that that's that's probably Biden's calculus. It's also that would also explain why the Biden administration is trying this wag the COVID move over the last week or so. Uh, you said, I mean, last week, last Friday, in the middle of this, Joe Biden was was doing full-on press conferences without any questions, obviously, uh, that were not pre-selected about COVID and the Build Back Better stuff. And everybody in the media was going, well, hold on a second. We've got 10 to 15,000 Americans stuck on the ground in Kabul. What are, you, what are you talking about right now? And the idea was, if I can distract you with this hand long enough for us to actually get enough Americans out so that you stop worrying about that over here, then, I mean, how bad does the situation in Afghanistan have to be that you're trying to distract Americans with your own failures on COVID? Remember, Joe Biden <laughs> declared victory on COVID. July 4th. It is now, last I checked, August 24th. And there is no victory on COVID. And Joe Biden's solution to that, his his distraction ploy is every employer in the United States should now put down vaccine mandates at the behest of the federal government and all children in schools should be masked. And that's his, that's his distraction play. How bad is the actual situation? Which is also having a deleterious effect on his job approval ratings. If you, you know, if you believe the polls for what they are, I mean, the Afghan situation is bad and the public doesn't like it. Um, but according to the analysis, the analyses that I've read and that I find compelling, it's the return of the status quo ante regarding the pandemic that has really put a damper on the notion here that there was, you know, any optimism for the future in the electorate. And the, and the Biden administration, as any first term administration is faced with, you know, uh, making a case for why their lives are better today than they were under the last administration. And it's increasingly difficult for this administration to make that case. Well, when Ben talks about the, the, the broader disaster here, the long-term disaster, and I, and I agree with um, everything you said on that point, um, I'm particularly worried now because 
at one point I had thought that when this, when the dust all settles and this is all over, um, at least there will be some media attention paid to the broader disaster. And that, that is, um, a, a, a resumed Taliban led Afghanistan and, um, uh, America's having no, um, uh, ability to project power there and have no intelligence there and so on. But now after seeing that, um, while Americans are calling uh, up uh, 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 U.S. representatives and, and media and saying and crying and saying, I'm trapped, I'm scared the Taliban are going house to house, uh, I can't get out of here. And even in the midst of that, you have some media now saying, well, this is looking like a success. Um, I realize there is no way, I, I think Ben is right, there is, when this is over, uh, and if uh, blessedly there are no uh, American fatalities at the end of this, and everyone and, and America, all the Americans are gotten out, I think no one looks back at this. No one looks toward Afghanistan at all and says, "Oh boy, we're in trouble." I think I think the story is very easily turned into, "Well, thank God we've rid ourselves of that." I think you might be right in the short term, but I also think Ben is absolutely right that the administration's own actions betray the lie that Joe Biden has been saying now about this. We can maintain our over-the-horizon strikes and, and disrupt terrorist activity in the AFPAC region from carriers in the Persian Gulf. We know that's a lie, and the Biden administration knows that's a lie. Why? Because they have been doing everything they can to convince, cajole, incent, um, create some condition in which the governments of the Central Asian republics north, north of Afghanistan, former Soviet republics, give us overflight rights, give us basing rights, give us the capacity to continue to project power into this area and maintain something akin to reliable uh, sources of intelligence on the ground in this area. Because as, as we learned in 2014, during the, when ISIS cascaded over the Syrian border, that overflights and satellites didn't cut it. They weren't sufficient to, to, to maintain our disruption capabilities there. And in the event that, as a, a Sigur report suggested, this really clear-eyed, really sober um, Special Inspector General's report for Afghanistan um, said, you know, listen, in the near future, in, threats to American national interests are going to arise in Afghanistan that will be imminent. Um, and American policymakers should not accept that condition. And in the event that we have to go back in, even if it's just airstrikes, executing airstrikes, there's no hiding that disaster from the public. It's not as though... You know, the, the people people will say, OK, well, you know, we did our best. Um, it will, The re disaster will reveal itself to be self-evident. And if you thought the American public hated how we got out of Afghanistan, wait till we have to go back in. Yeah, again, I think there's there's a lot of truth to that. I, I also think that uh, when it comes to, you know, going back in there, there is a, a pretty large distinction for the American public between putting boots on the ground and bombing things from the air. Uh, and this is the Clinton administration's entire strategy. Right. Fire, fire a missile at a camel's ass somewhere and uh, and call it a day. And I would not be surprised if that is sort of the Biden strategy as well. I mean, this has been a favorite strategy of both parties, by the way. You'll remember early on in the Syrian uh, situation with, with President Trump that he, he fired a couple of missiles into Syria. And, and this was celebrated by some and derided by others. But uh, it wasn't until we put troops on the ground uh, in, in Syria that it started to become uh, a serious sort of foreign policy issue. So, uh, again, I'm I'm fearful that the American public, that they're they're capacity for outrage on this is being completely spent on the current hostage crisis and there will be nothing left when when that is over for what is indeed the long-term threat which is not the threat to the hostages but the threat that 
China sees us as weak, that our European allies see us as weak, that what we're actually watching in real time is a complete reorientation of all of American foreign policy. And that's being obscured by the acuteness of the crisis on the ground in Kabul. It's not being, it, it should be making, it should be putting that in stark relief, but instead it seems like it's almost going to be used uh, as a, as almost a Potemkin village of outrage. And then once you get past it, there won't be any outrage anymore. And, and people are going to forget that China looks at this and they say, well, Taiwan is, you know, just right there and we could take that and Biden probably won't do anything or that the Chinese are going to grab all of the, um, all of the mineral rights in, in Afghanistan and, and have capacity to, to, and by the way, the, the, the it, it, like all of the American military, sophisticated military weaponry, it's not like these these goat herders from the 8th century are going to be using the American military weaponry. They're going to sell that to the Chinese or immediately exactly. reverse engineer all that stuff. Uh, so that, you know, the, the the sort of geopolitical consequences of this, that that is the stuff that you really haven't seen a lot about, right? All of the media coverage has been about the acute on the ground problem in Afghanistan, which makes for dramatic footage. But the dramatic long-term ramifications of not only America's enemies on the move, but American allies looking at the United States and saying, I'm not sure why we should side against your enemies as opposed to simply triangulating. I think that's going to be the next major move over the course of the next decade is you're going to start to see, you've already seen this with, with the Europeans and the Russians, for example, the Germans and the Russians have been doing this for a long time, um, but you're going to start to see European countries, you're going to start to see the Saudis, maybe the Israelis, you're going to see like pretty much all of the, the places the United States is considered to be reliable allies all over the world say, not that we're done with America at all, but but instead start to say, okay, well, shouldn't I at least hedge my bets a little bit by trying to build something here uh, that, that demonstrates some sort of friendliness to the Chinese and the Russians? Shouldn't I, shouldn't I hedge a little bit? If the United States is going to be in, in remission, if the United States is going to withdraw, somebody's going to fill that vacuum, and we all exist, you know, still at the behest of great powers. And Joe Biden had the gall to say sort of um, with a smirk, you know who wants to see us stay bogged down in Afghanistan as, as if as if we had been bogged down uh, these these past this past decade? China. China wants nothing more than for us to stay there. They don't want this to happen, man. Um, Walter Russell Mead has a great column uh, in the journal today, in The Wall Street Journal, talking about this very point, saying that um, the crisis uh, the U.S. now faces in terms of foreign policy is not exactly a credibility crisis whereby we won't. Um, defend ourselves if if attacked, but um, uh, really a sort of competence crisis. They they don't our allies have absolutely no reason to think that we can inv- come up with and execute sound foreign policy, and that that alters their calculations entirely. And as he said, from from abroad. It looks if you look at, you know, uh, the U.S. from uh, the past 20 years, um, it looks from from sort of going into Iraq to now, um, not that there aren't complicating arguments about about um, the, the, the justification for going for going into these wars, which I, I favor. But in any event, the way they have played out, um, it looks like one long line, two decades long of um, sort of. Um, defeat and um, uh, uh, exhaustion. Yeah, uh, and it's a fantastic column. And what Ben was describing briefly there, which is a theory that I subscribe to, and I think it was postulated by Stephen Walt, um, who you can take all the exception to Professor Walt as you you will, and I do, um, but I think this is a pretty apt theory of uh, how nation states uh, preserve their own security, which is uh, 
vis-a-vis great powers in their region, which is balancing versus bandwagoning. Uh, and we benefit from a lot of balancing where small powers surrounded by larger powers balance against those powers in their neighborhood by ban- balancing against them by joining with us, by being part of our, our uh, you know, the umbrella, under our umbrella. And in the absence of prohibitive American power, those, those states will begin to bandwagon with the aggressor in their neighborhood. And from there, uh, a whole host of horrors that we thought we had banished from history will return spheres of influence, um, you know, areas of operation that we can't access, the, the return of limits on commerce in the open seas, uh, the sort of stuff, the, you know, the, the comforts of American hegemony will begin to, to wither and fall away from us. And the Biden administration is banking that we are just so comfortable now that we won't mind or notice the, the gradual dis- disintegration of American hegemony, which will happen slowly and then all at once. I mean, um, I, I, I totally agree with that. And I also think that, uh, by, by the way, I think Biden's calculation there is not completely wrong. And he's looking at the calendar and it's only 2021. Right? right. It, it, he, he's figuring that by 2024, this is going to be old news in the same way that, you know, Benghazi was hot news in the moment. And then it became a point of mockery. Right? To even mention it became a point of mockery on, in, in the Twitterati verse. And, and I think that you'll, you'll see a lot of that same sentiment from the members of the media. So all they have to do, if this is, if this is the case, if that's the calculus, all they really have to do is get through the next two, two, three weeks. And again, I come back to, I think that that is the reason why you're seeing Joe, I, I, I can't see any other reason for Joe Biden to start talking about why private employers must now force every human being in America to vaccinate and public you know, public power should be used to force everybody to mask, including small children, except that he want he would prefer that we talk about that as opposed to the the unfolding and long term disaster in Afghanistan. Although I, I got to admit that at this point, I'm not sure that that the measures that he's talking about are going to be short term. Like I don't when it comes to this, the 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 covid situation um, and I know I'm switching topics here a little bit. But when it comes to the covid situation, I think for a lot of people, this is just the new normal. I think we are now in the forever, the forever pandemic. I see no signs of, of this thing letting up. I see no signs that anybody is willing to let it go. Now, I li- and when I say nobody, I mean the opinion makers, because the rest of America is willing to let it go. I'm down here in Florida. Nobody cares. Right? It's been over for us for a long time. We had a situation in our synagogue where you know, we have in, in, in the synagogue, we have three minyana, meaning like groups of men who pray at different times. And a couple of guys walked out of one of the earlier minyanim because people weren't masked. And it was the most packed I have ever seen the synagogue. So a couple of guys left and we had probably 250 guys who were there bigger than it had ever been because most people in, you know, quote unquote, real America, meaning outside the editorial offices of the New York times uh, are, are living their lives and they're back to doing their lives. And they're pissed off by the mask mandates for children, which are completely data free. Uh, But I think that for a lot of people, like I'm, I'm looking at Australia. I just don't. I, I, Noah, I've, I've used the phrase "limiting principle" a lot, and I love it because it really. And I've, I've started to adopt it, so I'll, I'll acknowledge my debt of gratitude to you for using that phrase here. There is no limiting principle. The, the zero COVID has been adopted as the tacit principle here, which of course is complete fantasy. Everybody understands it's complete fantasy, but it's the only thing that explains why we are even talking about COVID at this point when everybody can get a vaccine. Like, what is the limiting, what is the, the point at which you declare pandemic over, we have now won? Is it, is it when it's low levels of death? Because in Australia, they're on full scale lockdown. Is it when 80% of the population is vaccinated? Because Israel has 80% of the population vaccinated, and they're still not letting anybody come into the country. So 
that means that this may be the new forever, right? It may, it may, people who want to mask are, are literally going to be masking for the rest of their lives, perhaps. I want to get into this in much more detail. Uh, the, what, we're, what Ben is talking about, the resignation of our elites to uh, some rather intolerable circumstances. But you know, you know what you should not resign yourself to? Hair loss. Did you know that there are five root causes of thinning hair? Nutrafol is the hair supplement that goes beyond genetics and to target stress, hormones, nutrition, metabolism, and environmental factors that may be impacting your hair. Nutrafol is clinically shown to improve hair growth, thickness, and visible scalp coverage without compromise. 21 potent natural ingredients support sex drive, better sleep, and less stress. Nutrafol is trusted and recommended by more than 1,500 top doctors. You can grow thicker, healthier hair, and show, support our show by going to Nutrafol.com and entering the promo code COMMENTARY to save $15 off your first month's subscription. This is the best offer anywhere, and it's only available to U.S. customers for a limited time. Plus, free shipping on every offer. Get $15 off at Nutrafol.com, spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com, promo code COMMENTARY. So, yeah, briefly, before we go into our own lamentable circumstances, um, some video out of a uh, news, uh, news broadcast out of Australia yesterday caught, uh, caught a little bit of fire online and in social media. Um, and the, I, I was pleasantly surprised by the revulsion that it inspired among uh, opinion makers that I saw. I didn't see anybody who was like, well, this is, makes a lot of sense. It was, it was as you say, a, a policy of COVID zero uh, verging on something that I think you can accurately describe as dystopian. Um, you know, police officers hunting down teenagers who are, you know, find, having a, a jolly old time by themselves on the beach at night alone. Um, people who are uh, don't have proper documentation, vaccination documentation, deprived of work. Um, it's a sort of thing that that you don't see a lot of Americans coming out and saying publicly that we should do for fear of political consequences. But Ben, as you intimate, and as I, as I agree, there are a lot of people who probably do think this is a sound policy that we should be observing uh, in part because, you know, the pandemic isn't gone, that it is a pandemic of the unvaccinated, but the unvaccinated population in the United States is large enough to still present uh, a reasonable threat to the hospital systems in the states where there aren't a lot of people who are vaccinated. Um, but nevertheless, as you said, and as we all have to accept at some point, this is the result of individual personal choice. And unless we are to extirpate personal choice from the equation, this is the status quo forever. Yeah, and I, I think that is for a lot of folks the status quo forever. So my, my evolution on sort of COVID policy has gone along with the changing circumstances, which is what I frankly wish, you know, the public health establishment were capable of doing. Because at the beginning, when we didn't know anything, I, I wasn't rabidly anti-lockdown. We didn't know anything. Then it became clear that lockdowns were, were not only ineffective, they were counterproductive, particularly for young people. And I started to oppose them, but I was still not anti-masking because, again, I have parents who are 65. I didn't want to give them COVID. I didn't want them to die. And, uh, and then the vaccines became available. And at that point, it was pretty obvious that the risk of death from COVID for the vaccinated was extremely low. And we were going to wait until everybody had the opportunity to get, to get vaccinated. All right, fine. Then we did. And now I have no metric of success and no one else has any metric of success. And if you ask people for metrics of success, it's sort of like asking people to define what a woman is when they insist that a man can be one. They, like there's no actual articulable standard by which any of this makes any sense. And so if you say, 
please explain to me, what is the point at which we all get to take off our masks and we get to go back to life as normal? There's a substantial percentage of the population for whom the answer is never. And and this, you know, got me to thinking about just the nature of articulable risk, that, that there are so many risks that we live with on a daily basis, but we never actually contemplate it. Like we never think about it at all. If every day, all day long, all we got from the media was, if you get in a car, there's a very good shot you're going to die today. Then, and, and by very good shot, we mean one in a thousand, right? The, the, your shot of dying in a car accident is higher than your shot of, of dying from many of these diseases that we're talking about. So just, you know, know that when you get in a car, it's really dangerous. And you got that beaten over your head every single day, 24 hours a day. I would hazard to guess that most, many, many Americans would start calling for significant restrictions on driving, uh, would start taking public transportation. Uh, maybe that's the next move here well, and, sure. uh, and, and, and the like. And once a risk becomes articulable, once you put something in your brain from the non-risk category into the risk category, it's very difficult to remove from the risk category again. In the same way that if you tell people skydiving is safer than driving a car, which is actually true, then people will say, no, that's not true because you're jumping out of a plane in one. It's in the risk category of your brain. The media have worked for a year and a half because they wanted to terrify you into compliance to tell you that living regular life, breathing, letting your kids go to school is in the risk category. And therefore, it will never exit the risk category for a lot of people. And so the new permanent is you, you're going to have to mask up. You're going to have to avoid large crowds. You're never going to go back to a movie theater. You're never going to go back to a ball game because, hell, at that ball game, even if you're vaccinated and even if you are and even if there is low transmission and even if not a lot of people are dying, you could be the source of the next variant and that next variant could kill anybody. So I, I just don't see any sort of uh, I think we are in the permanent pandemic. I think the permanent pandemic is here already. I think the prospect of sort of um, creeping safetyism is very real. Um, there's no reason now that now that this is the way we operate in in regard to COVID. What happens when there's a bad flu season uh, and and everyone is um, broadcasting and um, pulling their hair out over uh, large numbers of elderly who come down with the flu? There won't be talk of masks then uh, and and mask mandates then. Uh, I would be shocked. Um, I think this is this is a way of living. This is a way of approaching life that we have fallen into. And that, I think, is the great danger. You know, I, I, I saw that uh, Fauci said, uh, I think yesterday on TV, he was asked, when, when, will, when will we be uh, in better shape? Um, of course, this is, as, as Ben says, this, there's, this is a, a, there's no metric for what that would even mean. And uh, he said, well, I think uh, by the fall or winter of 2022, we should be in good shape. And then he went on another show and said, I, I misspoke. I want to correct that. Um, I meant by the spring of 2022, we'll be in good shape. And I, and I, I listened to these and I thought, what, what difference does any of it make? What? <laughs> he doesn't know. We don't know what good shape is. We don't know what the fall will bring. We don't know what the spring will bring. It's all, it's, it's, none of it is anything anymore. Um, yeah, I want to echo Ben's sentiments. Like, you know, it's not just in Florida, you know, where, where the casual disregard for our public health is, you know, it's a way of life down there. I'm 40 minutes outside of New York City, and that's pretty much the status quo here. Um, I've only worn a mask on a handful of occasions since the CDC, you know, changed its guidelines, I think, back in May. Um, some people do, some people don't. There's kind of a, a tacit 
uh, ceasefire in the masking wars out here where some people want to do it, some people don't. And there's no enforcement of it where it's supposedly re-implemented. And that's that that piece has held so far. But who knows at what point our officials will want to re-engage in that fight. And you can see it probably coming when the weather gets a little bit colder, sure. Um, but regarding this child masking stuff, for example, which um, seems to be the new hot button issue as kids head back to schools, um, briefly, you know, when we started talking about this again, the re-implementation of mask mandates for kids, the lack of any data around this was a justification for prudence and caution among the people for whom a lack of data is terrifying. For, for us, it was, there's no data to justify this, so why do it? The same logic prevailed on their side. There's no data around this, so we have to do it. Um, yeah, but now we have data. We have studies. We have data across from the, the United States, from Europe, uh, regarding the efficacy of masking in children, and it is pretty minimal unless you're wearing like a K95 or not a K95, a regular N95 mask fixed to your face, so that there's absolutely no uh, particulate that can transmit outside the you know the sides of it. And children just don't do that. I mean, children are not really conscientious mask wearers which should be intuitive, um, but for some reason it's not. And nevertheless, I haven't heard anybody who is like, oh, we don't have any data, we have to be maximally cautious. I haven't heard them change their tune. I haven't heard them even acknowledge this circumstance because it doesn't seem as though there is a circumstance that could change their mind. Maybe it's not a reasoned position at all. Yeah, it's, it's, I think for a lot of folks, this has become an almost religious totem. And particularly with children, the the. Uh, Joe Biden said yesterday, again, this is part of the distraction tactic, but he said yesterday, your child should leave, should put on a mask when they leave the house. Your child should. Okay. The number of children, according to the all wanted CDC who have died of COVID-19, the entire pandemic below the age of 18 is 361. That is out of a subpopulation in the United States of 73 million human beings. Children are less likely to die of COVID-19 than adults are after having been vaccinated. Okay. Those are the actual stats. And the the Biden administration is pushing you to mask up your children, presumably to prevent teachers from getting sick or to prevent the, the, the way they talk about it is that they're afraid that children themselves are going to get radically ill uh, and that the children themselves are going to be dying in outsized numbers. There's no evidence that Delta is more deadly to children than the original variant. And there's there's no evidence of that at all. And by the way, it, it's amazing that that throughout the pandemic, all we heard is, is how wonderful Europe was in its approach to lockdowns and masking. Well, Nobody seems to be pointing out that virtually all of Europe was not masking children throughout this pandemic. And there's no evidence that there were these widespread outbreaks in the schools. In fact, there was a study that the CDC itself did in Georgia of 90,000 students in Georgia at a wide variety of schools checking out different procedures and what difference it made. And one of the findings that they actually filed toward, I mean, this is in a New York Magazine piece recently, uh, one of the findings that they, they filed toward was that there was no statistical difference between schools that had masking for children and schools that did not have masking for children. So not only is there no evidence that, that, it, that it works, there's pretty good evidence that masking for children is, is not great. I mean, like for development, uh, for their health, like there, there's all sorts of the American oh, Academy of Pediatrics used to have full have used to have full pages about how children need to see faces. It's really important. And now they actually took that stuff down in compliance with the with the diktats of, of the day. And so a lot of this just feels like an almost pagan worship of the of the authorities as capable of fulfilling your every want, need and desire 
And COVID is a proxy for that. If you just listen, if you just, if you would just listen to the authorities, if you would just listen to these people who can make you prosperous and they can make you wealthy and they can fill all your lifelong dreams, they can change your sex for you. They can do literally anything. They're, they're, they are magical, magical people. And if you just listen to them, and if, you, if only we would have masked harder, and if only we'd have vaccinated harder, you know, it's, it's, it's mask hard, mask harder, right? It's, <laughs> and then what, then why don't we, then, then all the ills of the world would have receded around us. The, the thing that I never understand about people who are vaccinated complaining about this stuff is you're already vaccinated. And here, I'm going to take the, the brief opportunity to rip on John while he's not here. Uh, so he can't defend himself, which is always fun. But uh, I, I called him about this. So it's a, and, and, and talked to him about this because it struck me. So on the, on the, this podcast, which I love and listen to every day, he has been you know, ripping on the unvaccinated on a regular basis and saying it's stupid for them not to be vaccinated. Okay, fair, fair. I mean, I'm a huge vaccine advocate. I think that the stats prove that, that vaccination is significantly more of a benefit than a detriment for the vast majority of human beings until you get to the very young. Uh, and by very young, I mean, there are some serious questions to be asked about teenagers given myocar- uh, uh, um, myocarditis and uh, below 12, it's not even clear. Um, but for, for virtually all other people, it's a good idea. All right, fine. But, but John is very, very angry at the unvaccinated. And I, I said to John, I think that you have been so trained to be a New Yorker and I understand I was trained to be an LAer, but you've been so trained to be a New Yorker that you're angry at the wrong people. You think that if the unvaccinated just did what the authorities wanted, you would get your life back in New York. And that's not true. <laughs> it's not about the unvaccinated. It's about the authorities. The authorities have no excuse for doing what they're doing at this point. You should be mad at the authorities, not the unvaccinated. And But the goal of the authorities is to redirect all of the anger that should be directed at the people actually controlling your lives at other people who do not pose a threat to you once you are vaccinated and who are supposedly the bad guys forcing these these reluctant public authorities to put restrictions on your life. Well, no one's forcing the public authorities to do anything. They can do whatever the hell they want, and they are doing whatever the hell they want. Well, I don't know about that. I don't know about that. Um, and this, you know, this will lead into the end topic of this conversation, and we haven't uh, delved into it yesterday, and we should. Uh, but as of uh, yesterday evening, formally, uh, the governor of New York, former governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo, resigned. He is no longer the governor of New York. Um, and the uh, the impetus for this was his handsiness, his uh, sexual aggression with subordinates. But I don't think that any of that would have materialized in the absence of the kind of revelations that we heard about his handling of COVID from Letitia James's office um, and subsequently from leaks from the assembly about how his callous and indifferent and uh, hidebound, you know, stubborn and hidebound uh, desire to continue these, po- these policies that resulted in tens of thousands of people dying unnecessarily of this disease. Uh, the revelations around that, I think, created the backlash that materialized in the form of this um, excuse to justify jettisoning Andrew Cuomo. On the other side of the country, the recall effort to get uh, Gavin Newsom out of office is predicated, I think, almost entirely, if not you know, explicitly, on California's response to COVID. It's aggressive, um, it's, it's probably too aggressive approach in some cases, and obviously how public officials flouted these guidelines for themselves and imposed them on uh, people below them. Um, there, I think, without it being very you know, plainly stated, that part of this is a backlash against the COVID regime. I mean, these were, these were the two avatars of the democratic response, the proper response 
to a pandemic in stark contrast with Donald Trump's handling of this pandemic. And the, and the worm has totally turned here. The wheel has, has now crushed Cuomo and does appear set to at least threaten Gavin Newsom. I don't know how close you are to the ground in California. You're long gone, Ben. But what are you hearing about um, what you think could be the outcome of this mid-September I mean, it's, recall? Yeah, it, it's looking bad for Gavin Newsom. Uh, apparently, the uh, Latinx voters are very upset, according to an L.A. Times reporter, uh, or at least they're not going to show up maybe because he keeps calling them Latinx and no one who has ever met a Latino person understands why anyone is doing that. But um, John Leguizamo's vote. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, uh, the, the situation does not look pretty for Gavin Newsom. I think some of that is COVID driven. I think the, the far, far greater majority, I, I think that was the impetus to get started. Like there were a lot of people who were sitting around. There was a lot of anger in California. And finally it was directed. Uh, I think, yeah, at the beginning, based on COVID, and then people just looked around. And the, the best quote that I've seen on this was uh, from uh, one of the the, low, the L.A. County sheriff, uh, who's a Democrat, uh, Villanueva. Uh, he said, you know, one thing that's likely to change your mind about politics in California is when you see a, a, a transient taking a bleep in your in your, on your front lawn. Uh, and uh, that is it. correct. Yeah, <laughs> that is correct. And uh, it is one of the reasons why we left California. So I think some of that is COVID policy. I think a, a broader majority of that is just the general attitude toward lawlessness, homelessness uh, that we saw over the last couple of years from Gavin Newsom. It's been disaster after disaster over there from the wildfires to uh, to the policies with regard to COVID, to his own hypocrisy on that sort of stuff. We're all in it except for Gavin Newsom at the French Laundry was was sort of the, the feeling in, in California. Uh, in New York, I think that, you, you know, you guys would know better than I would how much of that is backlash to COVID. I'm, I'm certain some of it is. But I think that the way a lot of Democrats are finding their way out of this is with the vaccine mandates. So what they're saying is you should be, you know, you have a pathway back to real life. The pathway back to real life is vaccination. And in the meantime, any restrictions that happen are because of the unvaccinated. So we'll see if that gambit works. And that, that, that is a, you know, th- there is something pretty politically ugly about suggesting that the, that sort of the full metal jacket situation applies in the barracks where one guy sins, therefore all of you will be punished and the punishments will continue until morale improves. Um, I, I think there, there may be some of that to it, but I, listen, I hope you're right. I hope that the backlash is coming. It's certainly, um, Ron DeSantis is not unpopular in Florida despite the media's best efforts. Well, I mean, let's take your analogy to, you know, its fullest extent. Uh, I, I'm generally supportive of, in the absence of municipal and state level mandates, private enterprise, uh, you know, pursuing the full metal jacket strategy, which is essentially compelling your neighbor to put a bar of soap in a, in a pillowcase and whack you with it until you're in, you know, into submission, because this is the way out of the pandemic. And there are quite a few who are attached to this idea that vaccination isn't for them and it's an infringement on their liberty. And I get it. I'm, I'm, I have those libertarian impulses as well. But there is nothing untoward about vaccine mandates in public institutions. We've been living with them forever. And the notion that private enterprise can should not have the capacity to restrict uh, services based on, on that sort of thing, insofar as it doesn't violate anti-discrimination statute, whether there are carve-outs for uh, religious objectors, for people with disabilities, for example, there's no disparate impact. All that stuff has to be worked out in the courts. But I don't see any other way to uh, avoid... Um, the kind of catastrophe, public catastrophe, which which the pandemic does represent. We shouldn't undermine it. Um, that could happen in the event that we have a large, substantial unvaccinated population. There will always be an unvaccinated population. We have to resign ourselves to the fact that there are people who are unreachable, that they have made an identity 
out of not getting vaccinated. And that will not change no matter what inducements we throw at them. But to the extent that you can peel back some of this on the margins, I do think that is valuable and shouldn't necessarily be dismissed offhand as long as it's not publicly administered. A private enterprise, a social contract is something quite different in my mind. I I just want to jump in here. No, I, I agree with you, except for the fact that I don't think anymore that that it is the way out of the pandemic um, in the sense that there's no way out of the precisely because the pandemic is not exactly about the pandemic anymore. Right. Mm-hmm. It's 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 about the fear of the pandemic. And it's a, it, and it's a, it's about um, what do we do about the ever shrinking number of people who are unvaccinated? They, they will always be there and they will always be the ruination of everything for 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 all the right thinking people. Um, so, so you can chase, you can, you can get into a situation where you keep trying to chase that goal by, by increasing, um, uh, measures to, to try to get more people vaccinated, which I agree with you is, is a good in itself. Um, I don't think it gets us out of the spiral or Well, then I guess it's vital to do what Ben has been doing, which is trying to define our terms to rob people of the fig leaf of the pandemic when what they're really advocating for is in, increased state control over private lives. Um, I, 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 no, I'm going to, I'm going to push back even on the, on the idea that private institutions should be pushing vaccine mandates uh, at, at this point. Uh, because I do think that the typically the public authorities that have pushed vaccine mandates uh, you're talking about, I think it, it depends on the situation. If you're talking about healthcare scenarios, this makes some sense. You're in touch routinely with people who are uniquely vulnerable. If you're talking about nursing homes, it makes some sense. You're talking about people who are uniquely vulnerable. If you're talking about just sort of general public institutions, Walmart, for example, uh, they don't mandate the flu vaccine. Uh, they don't mandate uh, a wide variety of vaccines, so far as I'm aware. I'm not even sure that, that like, I've never applied to a job where they've required you to, uh, and I've been working in private enterprise all my life, essentially, uh, where they have required you to have a vaccine. The last vaccine mandates that I recall are, are mandates at school. And there, typically when you're talking about measles, mumps, rubellas, chicken pox, you're talking about vaccines that are administered to children because there's a special danger from the disease to children. What's unique about COVID is that it is of very little danger to children. That's what makes the whole thing unique. Um, And typically we don't tend to mandate vaccines for adults unless you're talking about travel mandates. And so uh, the, the idea that you are going to, at the margins, force people to get vaccinated by telling them that they can't go to the, go to Broadway uh, or that, you know, private in, private institutions are what, what you're going to end up with is actually something I've heard you say yourself, Noah, you're going to end up with is zones for the vaccinated and zones for the unvaccinated, which actually tends to spread the disease faster. You're going to end up with all the unvaccinated going to the unvaccinated restaurants and all the vaccinated going to the vaccinated restaurants. Everybody who's vaccinated was already safe in the first place. Everybody who's unvaccinated is going to be there infecting each other. I just don't, I don't think you're going to see tremendous movement based on this incentive structure to get vaccinated, it seems like the only thing that drives people, and this is true for masking and vaccination, what drives people to mask up or get vaccinated is a feeling of danger, not a feeling of benefit. Uh, And the minute that you make people feel that there's a greater danger in getting vaccinated is with the J&J pause, they stop. And the minute they feel that there is a, uh, and the minute that they feel that there's a greater danger of getting sick, they start to vaccinate at higher rates, which is why when you saw this outbreak, uh, a few weeks ago, and you started to see the vaccine numbers go up, and suddenly Biden was bragging about that. It had nothing to do with Biden. It had to do with the media covering the the numbers and the fact that people were freaking out about it. So they said, okay, maybe I better go vac- vaccinate today. Yeah, I, I go back and forth on this, and, and you're right that it seems like the most immediate 
public health intervention that we should be encouraging right now is doing everything we can to integrate the unvaccinated population with the much larger vaccinated population. So there are fewer and fewer vectors of transmission. The problem is now is that everybody is convinced, and I hear this all the time, that vaccination does nothing at all to prevent transmission of this disease, which is something of, uh, I, I don't think the data justifies that. Yeah, it's, it's false. It's not true. Right. It's increasingly what they're talking about. It's all very discomforting. But you know what is comforting? The X chair and its newest innovation, LMAX temperature regulation, which will take your seating comfort to a whole new level. Patent pending LMAX allows you to experience cooling heat and massage your lower back. Feeling a little bit warm this summer? Set your LMAX to cooling. The air conditioning in your home or your office cranked up too high? Set your LMAX to heating. Warm up and soothe your tired muscles. The X-Chair's patented dynamic variable lumbar support was already the best in its class with incredible responsive lower back support. Now with LMAX, your comfort is guaranteed. You won't believe the difference until you feel it for yourself. Imagine regulating your body temperature and getting massage therapy while you're working. There has never been a better time to ditch that old no-name office chair and boost your productivity by treating yourself to the joys of X-Chair. Go to xchaircommentary.com now. That's the letter X, chair, commentary.com, or call 1-844-4-X-CHAIR to save $100 off your order. X-CHAIR has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort, and you can finance your purchase for as little as $30 a month. Go to xchair.com now. Use the code XWHEELS for free X-Wheel Blade Casters, xchaircommentary.com. Listen, Ben, I want to thank you so much for your time this morning. You've been a great guest. Um, he doesn't need any of our help to sell books, but if we can contribute, I'd like to. The author of The Authoritarian Moment, How the Left Weaponized America's Institutions Against Dissent. I haven't had an opportunity to read this one now yet, but I did read Ben's uh, last book, which I think was published 30 minutes ago, The Right Side of History, How Reason and Moral Purpose Made the West Great. It is a fantastic digest of Western philosophy and theology, theological thought. It is a must read. I am quite sure his latest is equally important and impressive, and you should go out and get it as soon as you have an opportunity right now while you're on your phone. I know you're listening on your phone. Go to Amazon, click that button, buy the book. You won't regret it. Ben, do you have anything you want to leave our audience with? Uh, no, just, uh, the, uh, well, one thing is keep listening to this podcast because it is indeed fantastic. Uh, and uh, make sure that you can get your monthly mailbox in your magazine. Uh, once a month. Uh, that, that, is the, that is the most important thing to remember. We haven't busted that one out in a while. We used to be a signature. We need a t-shirt. Um, ben, thank you very much. We appreciate it. We will be back tomorrow. And Christine Rosen will be joining us once again. John will be out, but he's his last day. He will be back on Thursday. I know you miss him desperately. We do too. So for the absent Christine, for the absent John, for Abe and for Ben, I am Noah Rothman. Keep the candle burning. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.